Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition, filmed today on Monday, August 22nd, 2016. My name is Gabby LaPera. I am your host for today's show. And joining me on the phone is John Maxfield, one of the Motley Fool's top analysts. Thanks for joining us, John. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me, Gabby. I'm really excited to have you. Um, so we thought that we'd go kind of simple, kind of old school for today's episode and just chat about a few stocks that John and I are kind of interested in buying. Like they may or may not be on our watch list, just just stocks that we've kind of had on the brain for a while. I hope you guys are excited for it because I know I am. And in fact, I am so ex- excited that I think I'm going to go first. Um, John, you and I were chatting earlier before the show about. Um, about industries that are cheap right now, uh, and one of those is banks. Um, no one really wants to buy banks right now, um, which is fine. And there's a, there's a there's a whole host of reasons for that, right? Like there's a lot of global instability in the financial markets. Um, think Brexit and China. Um, energy instability ends up affecting banks. So think like uh, Cullen Frost bankers and um, the 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 price of oil going down in Texas and that affecting those smaller local banks. Um, and just just general volatility have, has made people a little bit more hesitant to invest in banks. But that doesn't mean that banks aren't a good deal. Um, so now that I've now that I've prefaced that, I, I have to tell you that I am a risk averse person. Like I don't think that you would guess that I'm 27 based on my behavior. Um, maybe more like 67. So this first bank really appeals to that side of me, and it's Bank of Hawaii. Yeah, Bank of Hawaii is a, is a great one. It's it's interesting, Gabby, because you're talking about everything that you say is extremely valid. Look, if if you're going to go out right and buy a stock, like why would you want to buy one when everything is going great for either that industry or for that or or for that particular company at that particular time? Because that's when those shares trade for really high valuations, right? So right now, stocks are really expensive. So if you're going to go out and really look for good purchases as an investor, you got to look in those corners of the market where there's something else that's going on that's depressing valuations. And bank stocks, bank stocks are a perfect example. But here's the irony, Gabby. You've picked one of, I mean, over the <laughs> past decade, it's one of the best run banks. I, mean, bank I know of what you're going to say. <laughs> it's such a good bank, you know what I mean? It's such a good bank. And it's one of those that like you can't go wrong with that holding. Um, so, so it's a great one to you know add core bank stock to add to your portfolio. But you've certainly picked one that isn't cheap right now. <laughs> no, I know. Well, it's cheaper. It's slightly cheaper than it has been. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And here, here's the interesting. When I think of Bank of Hawaii, I, I don't know if you're the same way, Gabby. But when I think about you know companies, I always try to like think about like one tangible thing about that company that literally like, sticks in my head, and then I can kind of like pull that up and then kind of work backwards from there when I'm thinking about a company. And the one thing about Bank of Hawaii that I think of is the fact that it is such a good bank. I mean, this is like a regional bank, right, that's based in Hawaii, right? I mean, like As the, the name implies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it is such a good bank that when Citigroup, which went into the crisis as the largest bank in the country, when Citigroup got into trouble and had to change out the chairman of its board, you know who they picked? They picked the former chairman or the former CEO of Bank of Hawaii. Oh, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. So I mean, like, this is this is not 
I mean, like, so investors in the bank industry, like, we know about Bank of Hawaii because this is, you know, it's an incredibly well-run bank. But, I mean, this isn't just, like, a small regional bank that's just on that radar. I mean, the top banking people in the country, you know, know how well-run that thing is. Yeah, so just to give a little bit of context to that, um, Bank of Hawaii is, as far as banks go, actually not that big. It's only got a market cap of $3 billion. <laughs> I love that. I, I can say stuff like it's only got a market cap of three billion. It's it's kind of like geological age. Like the numbers just stop phasing you at certain points. Um, anyway, market cap of three billion, um, and it's it's has a really impressive performance in terms of um, uh, non-performing loans um, over the years. It its ratio has hovered around 0.2 percent of total loans, and that's only 0.1 percent of total assets, which is pretty incredible. And their coverage ratio is over 170 percent. And just to back up, a coverage ratio is basically um, how much the bank has uh, saved up just in case uh, loans go bad. So, ratios above 100 mean that they can definitely cover any loans that go bad. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, go on. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Go ahead. And here's the other thing that is, so that credit risk element is such a critical element. I mean, talking about bad loans and and a 0.2 percent, yeah, uh, I don't know if that's their net charge off ratio or if that's how much they're putting away in provisions. But that is so critical because when you think about banks, there's really you really want two things, really three things if you throw in valuation. But the first is that you want a bank that's that's profitable enough that it's earning its return on or that's earning it is more than earning its cost of capital that means that it's then creating value for shareholders and bank of hawaii does that it's consistently done that over the years but the other thing and this is i think this is something that that investors have a tendency to overlook when you think about bank stocks is that you 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 can't it's not just about re, you know generating a high profitability you know in good times What's equally as important, in fact, one could argue it's even more important, it's about consistency of earnings over a long period of time. Because you don't want to give that back, all those earnings back, every time the cycle turns around. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but Bank of Hawaii's non-performing loan ratio has been consistently low, even through the financial crisis. And part of that is the real estate market in Hawaii is so tight at all times, um, and the homes that are being built there are generally fairly expensive. So it's 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 and the type of people who are buying houses in Hawaii generally um, have better credit. Um, it's just just because of the market. Um, and Hawaii, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I got a little bit ahead of myself. My my brain got way too excited. Um, so Bank of Hawaii is is super duper tied to the Hawaiian economy, and it's really just been on the rise for the last few years. Um, Including a lot of luxury construction, um, which they talked about in the transcripts. Uh, they they think that some of the luxury, like high-rise construction, is is kind of winding down. But they don't think seem to think that there's going to be any less construction going forward in the future. And with under with the with the strict underwriting standards that they clearly have, it seems like it's a good time to be with Bank of Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would, I would agree that, and I would agree with even more with the general proposition that the banking sector is a place to look. And and to kind of play off of that, my first stock that that I'm thinking about is in another sector that, like banking, is really lagging lagging the market right now, and that's the energy sector, right? So we have energy prices that were what well over a hundred bucks a barrel a couple of years ago, and in 2014 they started heading down. Very sharply. Now they're around. I think they're around fifty bucks a barrel right now. They, I think they had gone down below thirty dollars a barrel. 
And so that's really constraining profitability in the in, in the energy space. Just like all those, you know, all these issues, these headwinds that are causing bank profitability to fall. But the thing is that you got to keep in mind that I, I, all everything works in cycles, whether it's banking, whether it's energy. So it is possible that oil prices could stay low for the rest of human existence, but that seems unlikely when you look at the history of oil prices and, and how volatile they are. And so the one that I like in the, in, in the energy industry, and I actually own this stock, is Exxon. And of course, like, I know that Exxon is like, oh, like, <laughs> we pick like, the most boring one right? <laughs> in like, the, all of the energy <laughs> industry. But the thing I like about Exxon is that it is really capably managed, and it's as opposed to being just an oil and gas company, you should. I think you can look at Exxon more as an energy platform. So even if things change in the industry, which they will, we'll move away probably from fossil fuels. I mean, that's already going on right now, and it will move into other areas. But if a company like Exxon Mobil can play it right, it can dominate that new space just as much as it's been dominating the, the current space. So when you look at what happened to its stock price, over the past few years and its profitability, this it just seems to me like this is a great opportunity to get in on a great company in a sector that is ailing right now. Can I ask you a little bit uh, what about what Exxon actually does? Because um, I know that there's like different players in the energy space. There's people who um, look for look for oil, and there's people who actually construct the physical pipelines, and like there's all sorts of different players in the field. What kind of work does Exxon do? So Exxon does, it, it's an integrated oil company, which means that it does, it does a, a pieces all along that production chain in terms of both going out, finding gas, drilling it, and then delivering it to consumers, so, which is another great aspect of Exxon because you have that natural hedge from the fact that it is in so many of these different areas. So let's say, for example, selling gasoline to consumers. Well, low oil prices, right, is really bad on the production side, but it's not as bad on the consumer side, right? Because consumers are going to be presumably buying more gas, right? When when the low, when when prices are low. So so that's one of the that's another kind of point. I'm glad you brought that up. That's another point about Exxon that is a real selling point for investors. Yeah, it's uh, it's what we call vertical integration. Um, so I, I, I have another bank to pitch, and this one is kind of in the complete other direction from Bank of Hawaii because, as I was talking to my mother last weekend, um, <laughs> uh, she she always wants to know well if I'm going out, and if she happens to call me at like nine o'clock on a Friday, she's like, so why why are you still at home? Like, are are, are you gonna go out? And so um, in um, in honor of my mother who wants me to live my life to the fullest and to to try and to reel back my risk-averse nature, um, I have picked Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, as I'm going to call it through this uh, segment. Um, Silicon Valley Bank is slightly larger than Bank of Hawaii, with a market cap of around $5.45 billion, but it has a totally different business model. Um, where Bank of Hawaii is really focused on uh, real estate, Silicon Valley Bank is really focused on commercial loans. So it's it, it really focuses on lo- lending, in particular, to venture capitalists and startups. And as it na- its name implies, it's in Silicon Valley, where there's a lot of those. Yeah, I mean, and you know the way I think about Silicon Valley Bank, it, I agree. It's just a great bank, really interesting bank, niche bank, with its focus on the technology sector. 
But what I think about when I think about it is it's like a merchant, it's like an old school merchant bank that provides services to technology companies. And what's interesting about about it is that even though to your to your point, it has a different risk profile than Bank of Hawaii because it's dealing with that technology sector, and it's almost more focused on that. It's almost more on that cycle as opposed to see your traditional banking cycle. Yeah. But what, what, what's great about it is that if you look at its balance sheet, it's actually a pretty safe bet from a credit perspective because it has, it, between you know, banks, they take money from depositors, they go out and they either make loans, which is, is, is the way you can make the most money because interest rates on loans are the highest types of interest or the highest interest rate a bank can get on the, the type of assets that it has. So you can either go that or you can go and buy safe securities, you know, government bonds, things like that. And government bonds, they're safe, so they earn a lot less money. But what Silicon Valley Bank does is because it makes a good amount of money, particularly for its size, from non-interest sources by you know, serving as kind of a quasi-merchant bank to the technology sector, it's able to take less risk in its asset portfolio. So what they do is they actually hold more securities on their balance sheet then they do loans, yeah. which is unusual for a bank, but it's great because it really reduces that risk profile. It's insane. It's something like 80% of their their assets are held in securities, something like that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a large chunk. Yeah, um, and it's really interesting um, that you talk about old school because one of the things that Silicon Valley Bank is most known for is its relationships with its customers. People don't hesitate to take out a loan with Silicon Valley or venture capitalists don't hesitate to uh, do business with them because they have a softer touch. So sometimes startups, they can be what seems like on the ropes and rally, Silicon Valley Bank works with uh, with these people to make sure that they have the best opportunities to do that, um, which is not something that all banks are really interested in doing. Like I think a lot of people have this idea of banks that 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 it's like they're when you go when you stop paying your loans, they're immediately on your case and like calling you and like trying to foreclose on you and all these things. Silicon Valley Bank is basically the opposite of that for startups, which is really important for fledgling businesses like that. Yeah, and, and he, I, I read the most the, like the craziest stati- statistic about Silicon Valley Bank the other day, a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that it does is, I mean, it, it, it banks some of the top tech entrepreneurs in the country, and not only banks their companies, but also banks them on a personal level. And I read the other day that they were able to get Mark Zuckerberg's accounts. I don't know if they got all the accounts. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg has accounts at many banks. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but they, they are one of his bankers, and they underwrote his mortgage as something like 1.7%. I, oh, I don't yeah. quote me exactly on that statistic, but I mean like well below the market rate it's actually for a mortgage. really interesting that you mentioned that because a lot of their, I think their mortgages are actually, their residential mortgages are invitation only. So they will reach out to uh, people in venture capitalist firms or startups and say like, we would like to fund help fund your mortgage, um, which implies that the mortgages are probably pretty safe if they're invitation only. Yeah, I would RS- I don't know about you, Gabby, but I would definitely RSVP in, in the affirmative for that <laughs> invitation. <laughs> definitely. And just to give you kind of an idea of, of how Silicon Valley Bank is being run, um, its efficiency ratio, let me tell you this, in 2010 was 69.7. By the end of 2015, it was 53.6%. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> and That's, just just for our listeners, lower is better when it comes to efficiency ratios. And the closer you can get to 50 is the goal. 
Yeah. If, and if you can get it under that, that's 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 amazing. But the, the the one thing to keep in mind about the efficiency ratio is that when it's calculated, it's a function of both your revenue and your expenses. Um, so my guess is that the fluctuation there, there may have been a revenue thing going on there, or they had some sort of weird one-time expense. Yeah, but if you if you look at the if you look at the trend chart, it definitely starts up in sixty nine point seven percent, and then it like definitely slowly steps down to yeah. fifty three point six. So like someone's doing something right over there and not just that um non-performing loans over total loans uh, is 0.73 percent and i do want to caution people that that is up from 0.27 percent in 2014 and 0.52 percent in 2011 but that's still pretty gosh darn low yeah yeah that is low and, and now we're in a good credit rate environment right now um but that it's always a good sign when when those when those metrics are low. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's really interesting to me about Silicon Valley Bank is that they don't just they don't just hand out loans. They also um, when they're negotiating their packages, they also get warrants, which is um, the right to buy stocks in companies when they go public. Um, that's right. Which can be super valuable. Um, I don't know if you saw. Um, so, so so some of the other companies that that Silicon Valley Bank has has worked with, like Twitter. And Cisco, which are giants, um, but I don't know if you saw this, but Walmart bought Jet.com, and included in that sale or in that purchase was five million dollars in financing that was housed completely at Silicon Valley Bank. Hmm. So good for Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> yeah, good for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so let me, so let me go on to so I'll, I'll kind of go on to my to that my final one. So. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is also this is not in an industry right now so much that is having problems like the oil industry or one might say the bank industry is. Um, however, the company itself has had some issues that has caused its shares to fall almost fifty percent over the past six months, and that company is Chipotle. Now, I own Chipotle too, just like I oh, own wait, Exxon. Wait, how are you saying that? Chipotle. Am I saying that wrong? It's Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's here's the thing. Here's the thing about Chipotle. So, its shares have literally been cut in half since it had a series of foodborne illness crises at the end of last year. And, but the thing about it is that every other and I've written about this on on on, on Fool.com regularly over the past few months. The thing about it is that every other major food company, for the most part. In the United States, has been through a similar experience, seen in terms of a foodborne illness crisis, seen their stock fall, and then gone on to produce large gains. Whether that's Jack in the Box, whether that's McDonald's, whether that's Yum Brands, which owns KFC, uh, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. Can Taco I, Bell. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Have other brands had as a prolonged? Time period with foodborne illness news. So, I you really good point. So there are some unique characteristics about Chipotle's foodborne illness situation. The first is that, like McDonald's, its big E. coli scandal was I think it was in 1993. So that was pre-internet. So you didn't have that proliferation of information the <laughs> same way that that it happens now. Online, so you didn't have that. However, while Chipotle seems like it's gone on for a long time, what really I, I think that what you really want to look at is the severity of the crisis itself. And in that regard, Chipotle was actually not very severe. Let me give you a, a, an example. 
Jack in the Box dealt with an E. coli uh, situation. Uh, I can't remember exactly when that was. It was a couple decades ago. And something like four people died from it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and like, and Jack in the Box. Horrifying. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, so is Jack in the Box like the busiest fast food chain ever? No, right? I mean, like, it's nothing like McDonald's or Chipotle or the other ones, right? But it afterward, it went on to produce huge gains after that scandal. So the point is that this is an opportunity to get in at a company that just last year was trading at almost, almost twice the price and everybody was talking about what an amazing company was. It goes through a pretty standard thing. I mean, it's not a good thing, of course, right? But it goes through a relatively standard thing for a company in its industry. Its stock falls 50%. It'll probably, uh, presumably it will recover. These are, this is the opportunity that you want to use to get in on a company like that. Yeah, I, I have to say that there was a little bit there where that E. coli scare was great because I ate at Chipotle all the time. And I would get in line and there would be no one there. I, w- I would get my burrito so fast. And apparently that fear is waning because the lines are very long again. And that's yeah, have upsetting you, have you to me as a consumer. <laughs> so, yeah, let me ask you that. Have you, have, so I'm out in Portland, Oregon, which is really where that E. coli scandal was centered. And not only that, but the Chipotle closest to my house is one of the restaurants that uh, that it happened at. And I have noticed that at that restaurant, which I go, we go to most frequently because it's close, the lines just have not picked back up to their to the kind of pre-crisis level. But would you say that from your perspective in in the DC area that that it has recovered or or that it's in the process of recovering? Kind of where would you put that? Yeah, um, I mean, this is completely anecdotal research based on me going to three area Chipotles. There is King Street Chipotle, uh, Duke Potle, which we like to call the Chipotle on Duke Street, and the one near my house in Columbia Heights. And all of those are slammed all the time. Yeah, that's all a great sign. Um, and I, like I said, like a few months ago, like it was definitely a lot quieter. I don't know if it was just, I guess this was in the winter. I don't know if it was just too cold for people to go outside, like snowpocalypse like the third version of snowpocalypse and people were still debating what to call that snowstorm. Um, maybe that deterred them from going outside. Not me. Um, I need to get my burrito, but I don't know. I, I think it's doing fine. As far as I can tell, the food quality hasn't changed. I might just have a stomach of steel or it could be that I'm so hyper cautious that I, I don't know if this is too much information, John, but <laughs> I'm going to share it. it with you anyway. <laughs> share, share away. I, I vomit a lot. Um, <laughs> I, am, okay, I am such a nervous vomiter. Like it's it's insane. Like it can be like emotional stress. It can be uh, motion sickness. It can also be like I just psyched myself out of something, um, and that includes food. Um, and I, I haven't had that problem with Chipotle ever. <laughs> That's great. That's quite a recommendation. <laughs> let me. This doesn't have anything to do with that. But let me like take this in a different direction. I, the one. So I, I think this is a great stock. It's my second largest holding after Bank of America. Uh, in both my wife's in my my combined portfolio with my wife. Um, but let me tell you the one the one part of the Chipotle thesis that a lot of people seem to be sold on that I am not sold on. Tell me. And that, and that is this idea that these other concepts it's, it is developing are going to catch, that are really going to do well. And let me tell oh. you why I have that, why I question that. Are you talking about that, like Chiptopia? 
I'm, t- I'm talking about Shop House, their Asian concept. Oh, okay. And Pizzeria, I think it's, I can't write Pizzeria Locale or something like that. It, it, their pizza concept that's that's in Denver. And Shop House, I, that, their first restaurant was out there in D.C., and I think they have a couple of them now. But you're just not, just not seeing, it, at least from everything you hear from the company, you're just not seeing that same acceleration in sales that you saw at Chipotle early on. So I'm just, I'm, that's one part of the thesis that I'm not as optimistic about the, as I think a lot of other you know, people who look at Chipotle and like its stock. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, I, I also think that since Chipotle does have such an established network, it's not as big of a risk as it could take. You know, like if another company were trying to do this earlier on in its life cycle, it would probably be a huge risk. But for Chipotle, it's kind of a middling risk, I feel like. Yeah, and the other thing is that they are able to finance all these things through its cash flow. So it's not like going out and borrowing a whole bunch of money. In fact, if you look at its balance sheet, it doesn't have any debt. So it's not like it's going out and borrowing and doing these things. So it's not making it, you know, you know, increasing the, the uh, you know, the frailty of its balance sheet to do that. But still, it just doesn't seem to 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 help out with that, you know, you know, in terms of the premium valuation on its stock. Uh, let me let me just bring up one more point about Chipotle, and just to kind of put all of this in, into perspective. One of the things that Warren Buffett talks about a lot is the importance of because nobody can foresee the future, what's going to happen to any company, right? So what what you want to do to kind of protect you on the downside is you want to identify stocks where there's this where there's a margin of safety, right? So so even if things do go bad, the downside is relatively limited. And when you think about Chipotle, it, it just looks like one of those asymmetric bets where the, the probability of it going up at this point seems to be much greater than the probability of it going down because it's already dropped 50%. I mean, there's just a limit to how, much, how far it can go unless Chipotle is going to go away, which again, the historical precedent does not support that, right? So it's one of those stocks where, you know, I, I think you can get in. I mean, this is my thesis on it, anyways. I think that you can get in, assuming it's a long-term hold, and feel comfortable that you have a margin of safety built into that holding. Okay. Well, I think that this was an interesting show that revealed a lot of my personal character flaws, um, and I'm I'm sorry that you all had to one hear one very it. major one. <laughs> I don't know if that's a that's a personality flaw so much as like a. A body flaw. I don't. I don't. I don't really know, but um, just make sure you don't sit behind me on a roller coaster. Anyway, <laughs> in front of you, rather <laughs> in any direction. Don't yeah, don't get on a roller coaster with me. Is really the moral of the story to this podcast. <laughs> um, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at MF Industry Focus. Thank you to Austin Morgan, today's totally awesome producer. Um, thank, thanks for listening to my stories about puking, Austin. You rock. <laughs> and thank you to y'all for joining us, especially you, John. Everyone have a great week.